Pontiac's attempt to take Fort Detroit by stratagem on May 9, 1763, failed. This was a major blow to the insurgents because Pontiac well knew that a siege did not favor him. Storming the palisades of the fort would cost unacceptable casualties, and the Indians had no artillery with which to reduce the works. Pontiac knew full well that simply banging away at the fort with musketry would not be effective and would simply burn precious gunpowder. By the same token, he could make life miserable for the garrison. On May 10th, Pontiac sought a truce with Major Henry Gladwin to discuss terms of some kind of peaceful resolution of the crisis. The Odawa war captain asked that Captain Donald Campbell be sent out to the house of a French habitant named Antoine Couillier to negotiate on behalf of the garrison. Campbell, who had commanded the garrison for a year before the arrival of Major Gladwin, was not a particularly soldierly figure, at least in his appearance. He was considerably overweight and very nearsighted. But he was well liked by just about everyone, including the French habitants and, and the Indians. Gladwin was reluctant to let Campbell go and declined to order him to do so, but Campbell volunteered to go and a Lieutenant George McDougall volunteered to accompany him. Gladwin wanted to hold the four chiefs who had brought Pontiac's truce message to the fort as hostages, but French habitants convinced him that this would be seen as, as a, an act in bad faith and uh, told him that the two officers would be safe. So Gladwin let them go, and that would prove to be a terrible mistake. When the two officers met with Pontiac at the Coulier house, he offered them terms, the same terms that the French had received from the English when they surrendered Fort Detroit back in, uh, in 1760. And uh, those terms were that they would, would have to give the fort up and everything in it, and that then the, uh, the besieging Indians would escort them back to the British frontier. But uh, Pontiac didn't let Campbell and McDougall return to the fort to relay those terms to them. He sent uh, some French habitants instead and actually kept Campbell and McDougall in custody, which was a really clear violation of, of truce protocols, um, not uh, just European truce protocols, but uh, of, uh, of the native peoples as well. So uh, Pontiac told the officers, well, I'm going to just hold you for a couple of days but that turned out to be not true either. Uh, he never did return them. This, of course, made Major Gladwin furious, and uh, he refused to negotiate any further. Um, it's an interesting move on, on Pontiac's part, and we don't really know what his thinking was here. We certainly can't dismiss or excuse the kidnapping of the two British officers as some kind of a cultural misunderstanding or a difference in, in outlook on protocols. Like I said, Pontiac was well familiar with diplomatic protocols of both the French and the English, as well as the native peoples, and under no circumstance would 
kidnapping diplomats and holding them hostage be considered acceptable behavior. It was an act of treachery, and it was the kind of act that convinced officers like Gladwin and his commander-in-chief, Jeffrey Amherst, that only the harshest punitive measures should be contemplated in, in dealing with this insurgency. Again, it's kind of puzzling as to why Pontiac chose to do this because uh, there wasn't really an upside to it that uh, is readily discernible, but he may have been under pressure from the more radical of his people. Um, Pontiac was not a dictator, and uh, he was leading the show but not running the show. So with this truce, which was almost certainly never a good faith gesture to begin with, over, the siege just ground on. As we recounted in the previous episode, other posts across the region fell, one after the other after the other, and more Indians came to Detroit to join Pontiac, including a contingent of 200 Chippewas under a particularly ferocious war captain named Wasson. The Indians continued to attack the fort directly, including attempting to set it afire with fire arrows, which Gladwin countered by having, uh, having kegs of water stationed all around the fort to, uh, to extinguish any blazes that got going. But the Indians also ambushed supply and trading convoys headed to the fort, most or all of which were unaware that the fort was under siege at the time. And these were successful actions that kept morale from flagging, but they didn't really succeed in cutting the fort off. It's really useful to remember that Fort Detroit was a port, and uh, there were two ships there that were, um, were able to protect and to serve it, a schooner named the Huron and a sloop named the Michigan. And both were armed, and both kept the lines of communication open from Detroit across Lake Erie to the east to Fort Niagara. Now, Pontiac, of course, knew how vital the ships were, and he tried several times to take them. But uh, wind, weather, and in one case, swivel guns firing on his warrior's canoes foiled him. In one of these attempts... Pontiac actually used Captain Campbell as a human shield and forced him to hail the Michigan, trying to get the captain to sail to shore. Now, Donald Campbell might not have been the image of a badass soldier, but he was one, and a very brave one at that. He hailed the Michigan, told the captain that he was under duress and that he should keep well away. Um, Of course, he was risking immediate execution for this, but uh, he did it anyway. And uh, in this case, the the Indians did not kill him immediately. At some point here, Lieutenant McDougall managed to escape from Pontiac's village and made it back to the fort. And he, when he arrived, he told the the, uh, commander there, Major Gladwin, that he had tried to persuade Campbell to come with him, but Campbell figured he was just too fat and too blind to have a chance. And unfortunately, he probably should have taken his chances because he would soon come to a a very bad end. 
And the way this went down was that there were constant skirmishes going around on around Fort Detroit. The uh, the besieging insurgents would build breastworks and try to move closer to the fort to have more effective fire, and then parties of soldiers uh, would sally out from the fort and break up these breastworks and and chase the besiegers away. Um, and, and they also burned buildings that were within musket range of the fort to, uh, to deny the Indians cover. Um, most of these were, were either bloodless or very low casualty affairs, but, uh, there were, there were often firefights. And in one of these firefights, a nephew of the Chippewa war captain, Wasson, was killed. And this sent this Chippewa war captain into a tremendous vengeful rage. Um, he was very angry at Pontiac and, and shouted at him that, that, you know, Pontiac was engineering all of this, but it was his Chippewas who were fighting and dying, um, which is an old story of warfare, right? But, uh, he demanded that Pontiac turn Campbell over to him and, Again, Pontiac was not an absolute commander, and he really couldn't afford to alienate a fighting captain like Wasson. So he acquiesced. And Wasson split poor Campbell's skull open with a tomahawk, scalped him, chopped open his chest, tore out his heart, and ate it. And then he dumped the captain's corpse into the Detroit River. And, uh... It floated down past the fort, and the garrison fished it out and gave Captain Campbell, a brave soldier who met a gruesome end, the honorable soldier's burial that he deserved. So the siege continued to just drag on indecisively through the hot and muggy Michigan summer. And if you've been to Michigan in the summer... It's very hot, very muggy, and uh, a lot of bugs. Not necessarily a pleasant condition in which to conduct a siege or in which to be besieged. Pontiac really struggled to keep his coalition together. Uh, Some of the Indians were much less ardent than others, and some actually sent out feelers to Gladwin seeking to make some kind of an independent peace. And... In part of his effort to keep this coalition together, the Odawa war leader continued to make representations that that this insurgency would lead the French king to wake up and lead the French to come back into the country to help them drive out the British. And as the summer dragged on, it was clear that that wasn't happening. And in fact, there were rumors that the French had actually made a final peace deal with the English and were never coming back. And this, of course, was true. But Pontiac did his best to spin that as as fake news. On July 28th, a relief force led by a captain, James Dalyell, and counting amongst its number the legendary ranger, Robert Rogers, who had, you will recall, taken the surrender of the French at Fort Detroit, arrived in a convoy out of a very foggy night on Lake Erie. 
there were 260 men in the force, which was quite a bit larger than the original Fort Detroit garrison. And the British hoped, Amherst hoped, that this force would bring a turning point in the siege, allowing the British to go over to offensive operations. Amherst wrote to Sir William Johnson that uh, he hoped that Dalyell's arrival meant that the garrison could now pursue such offensive operations as will revenge the death of poor Captain Campbell and the rest of our unhappy countrymen. Dalyell almost immediately sought Major Gladwin's approval to conduct a raid in force. He wanted to attack Pontiac in his camp, which was about two miles away from the fort. And uh, Gladwin was very reluctant to grant permission to do this uh, for a couple of reasons that were, were both sound and would actually prove out. He suspected that the French habitants would tip Pontiac off to the raid. Um, he also knew that, that there was high ground around Fort Detroit where the, uh, the besieging Indians could see any activity, even if it was conducted at night, and know that something was up. So he was afraid that, that Pontiac would be on to the, uh, the raid and would ambush Dalyell's column. Gladwin did ultimately allow Gladwin and a force of about uh, 240 or so men to leave Fort Detroit at about 2.30 in the morning on the last day of July. And they marched out. It was very, very hot weather, even in uh, the wee hours of the morning, and the men were stripped down to their waistcoats. And uh, they moved out to attack Pontiac's village. And uh, Pontiac did, in fact, know that they were coming. And he had sent uh, set watchmen out on the road to alert him to any British troop movements and uh, set up an ambush, a pretty, uh, a pretty sophisticated ambush, including a large contingent that... Uh, that stayed back and circled around to try to get behind the British column. And uh, the British hit a bridge where it crossed a brook. And uh, this shouldn't be thought of as, as wild country. This was, was right around the fort, and it was settled, and there were, were farmhouses, and, and there was a bridge across a creek. And uh, when the British soldiers hit that bridge, the... Uh, the Indians opened fire on them with a, a, a very galling fusillade of musketry, and uh, it was it was a bad scene. Um, the The British troops behaved well, and they they didn't panic and run. They actually attacked into the ambush as as one must. But uh, but Pontiac's warriors held their ground and. Uh, then other warriors came pouring in from other camps, um, so Pontiac's forces considerably outnumbered Dalyell's, and, uh, and they got shot up badly. Uh, Rogers took a contingent of men into a nearby farmhouse and fought from there, and uh, 
it was a it was a good thing that he did because it offered covering fire for a retreat, which was the only option that they had. And and the, so the British column made a fighting retreat, but uh, Dalyell did not make it. Uh, he took a, a couple of wounds uh, and uh, then a third shot to the torso that uh, that killed him. And uh, he he took these wounds while he was trying to get his command out of the mess that he'd led them into. So he, he died a, a pretty heroic death. But dead he was. And, uh, and the survivors of this fight, which would become known as the Battle of Bloody Run, straggled back into, the, into Fort Detroit at about 8 o'clock in the morning. And uh, they'd taken quite a few casualties, about 20 dead, um, about 40 wounded, uh, a good chunk of the force that was combat ineffective. We don't know how many casualties the Indians suffered. It's interesting in, in the oral history of these fights, um, most of the time, the, the warriors who report on it after the fact, the casualties they report are the ones either that they saw in front of them or the ones that had happened to their people, um, leaving out the numbers from from other tribes in their coalition. So it's always kind of hard to assess the uh, the native casualties, and this is true all the way through all of the, the frontier partisan conflict in North America. It seems that the, the best the best estimate is that, that probably about a half dozen, uh, maybe slightly more um, Indians were lost in this battle. So it was a, a definite victory for Pontiac's insurgents. Um, Dalyell's body was left on the field, and uh, once again, uh, he was was butchered by the Indians. His heart cut out and rubbed in the faces of the British prisoners. And uh, then the next morning, a uh, a Frenchman recovered the body and took it to Fort Detroit for burial. The Battle of Bloody Run was a major shot in the arm for Pontiac because it shored up a coalition that was getting pretty shaky and it brought him in a hundred or so new recruits. It was a very discouraging blow for the British um, because they knew that the siege wouldn't be broken anytime soon and that they had really no hope of staging any offensive operations for the rest of 1763. Another discouraging development for the garrison was that the the sloop, the Michigan, broke up in a storm at the east end of Lake Erie, which seemed like a pretty ominous sign. But then a victory on the water shored up their spirits. Gregory Evans Dowd relates in his excellent book, War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire. The Huron was almost also lost. On September 4th, facing unfavorable winds, the schooner moored in the river and was attacked by 350 warriors who strove to board the vessel from canoes under cover of darkness. Several managed to clamber up the bow and the stern, only to be speared and shot by sailors and soldiers. The attackers killed the ship's master and one seaman, and they might well have taken the vessel 
had not a warrior cut one of the two moorings, causing the vessel to rotate unexpectedly into the current, away from his fellows, and in such a manner that the crew could unexpectedly fire broadsides of grape shot at the canoes. Favorable winds later rose to propel the Huron upriver with its cargo of provisions to the Detroit garrison's great joy. Gladwin made the crew a present of $100, and he renamed the ship the Victory. Never did the Indians capture it. So Bloody Run was a serious defeat for the British, but there was worse to come. Much, much worse. One of the worst defeats suffered by the British in native warfare in North America. This time the action was at the other end of the Detroit-Niagara communications train at the Niagara River portage known as the Carrying Place. The terrain here was very steep and rugged, and the Seneca who lived along the portage had made good wages carrying loads on it, and they called it Dijehea, which meant walking on all fours, which gives you an idea of, of how difficult it was to, to portage goods there, although they were able to move goods in ox wagons. A deep crevasse and whirlpool also gave the place a much more ominous name. Devil's Hole. The Indians who lived in the vicinity of the carrying place were Seneca, the largest and westernmost group of the Haudenosaunee nation, the five nations of the Iroquois, or now six nations since the Tuscaroras had joined them. Most of them were relatively neutral or favored the British, but a fairly large contingent of Seneca's were oriented towards the French, and they were very hostile to the British. Um, These were known as the Genesee Seneca, and uh, they'd actually been pushing for an insurgency since 1761. And uh, they would enact one of the the most successful attacks of Pontiac's war on September 14th, 1763. Some 25 or 30 or so soldiers were, were moving supplies with oxen along the edge of this very deep gorge at the carrying place, and several hundred of these Genesee Senecas fell on them from the brush and, uh, and started slaughtering them. And uh, a contingent of, uh, of British soldiers heard the gunfire, and commendably enough, they ran to the sound of the guns, but they ran right into the Seneca about a mile away from the initial attack, and the Senecas just mowed them down, uh, killing more than 70 of them. And uh, they stripped the dead and threw their corpses down amongst the rocks. Many of the uh, of the soldiers uh, and the teamsters that that died in this attack actually died from running and jumping over the cliffs trying to escape from the Seneca, and they fell to their deaths either on the rocks or fell into the into the water and drowned. And uh, the Seneca also slaughtered all of the oxen um, and, uh, and broke up the wagons, which 
was an effective attack on the ability to supply Detroit from Niagara. And uh, so the British troops basically from, from that point on would have to portage the, uh, the supplies that were headed from Fort Niagara to Detroit through the carrying place on their backs. And it required a lot of work and a very heavy guard because uh, they didn't want a repeat of this disaster that had occurred at Devil's Hole. And uh, once again, the, um, the attack was a morale booster for Pontiac's insurgents, and it actually countered some bad news that had occurred in other fronts, um, which we will get to in our next episode. I had initially planned to talk about the way the, the war moved east um, into the Pennsylvania backcountry in this episode, but uh, there was enough here that I, I thought we would save that for its own own episode. And uh, that warfare in the Pennsylvania backcountry really is emblematic frontier partisans warfare with uh, settlers being attacked in their homes and their homes burned and many killed, many taken captive and uh, and led off into the Ohio country. And it's the kind of warfare that, that left real scars on that frontier backcountry, psychological scars that would influence the actions of the white settlers, both in, in the immediate term and down the line and actually contributed to unrest that, uh, that was one of the sparks of the American revolution. So that really deserves a lot of, of attention and we're going to give it, uh, in the next episode. We have, uh, a couple of new patrons on board and I want to thank all of you who, uh, who, put down some clues to support the Frontier Partisans blog and podcast. Uh, it really does make it possible for, for me to do this. I'd like to thank Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwertfager. Um, as I mentioned, uh, when we come to the end of uh, the Pontiac's War uh, episode series, we're going to uh, do a, uh, a patron drawing for a chance to win a copy of Gregory Evans Dowd's War Under Heaven, Pontiac, the Indian Nations, and the British Empire. Um, and uh, got a couple other... Uh, patron rewards that I'm going to draw for here uh, shortly too. So uh, look for an update on the Patreon page for that. And uh, if you are interested in becoming a patron of Frontier Partisans, the link to our Patreon page is in the show notes. And again, this week, uh, War Under Heaven was a primary resource, as was a most troublesome situation, the British military and the Pontiac Indian Uprising of 1763-1764. Both excellent books, and if you want to delve deeper into Pontiac's war, I highly recommend them. 
I'd also like to recommend uh, David Dixon's Never Come to Peace Again, which uh, focuses a lot on the uh, Pennsylvania backcountry and Ohio Valley frontier aspects of, of the conflict. Um, so next episode will be in the backcountry. Um, I envision probably two maybe three more episodes uh, in the the series on Pontiac's War. And uh, I hope that you are enjoying listening to them as much as I've enjoyed putting them together. And we'll see you down the trail.